Good morning. I'm John Walters, Chief Operating Officer of Hudson Institute. Welcome to Hudson's Betsy and Wally Stern Policy Center. Welcome, too, to those joining us on C-SPAN and online. Founded in 1961, Hudson Institute is a leading voice in Washington and capitals around the world, promoting democracy, American leadership, in partnership with our allies for a secure, free, and prosperous future. Our thanks publicly, I want to make these to our many friends and supporters who uh, allow this work to go on. We hope you can join us for some of our future programs, including a July 13th, when Director of National Intelligence Dan Coates will be at Hudson to discuss U.S. intelligence community transformation efforts and the possible impact of Russian cyber influence on the U.S. midterm elections in November. We also hope you'll subscribe to our new in-depth podcast, Policy Talk, available now on iTunes and Google Play. We have an important and timely program today. On Sunday, Mexican voters elected Mr. Lopez Obrador, their country's new president, in a landslide. And he and his newly formed party have promised to address the rising violence in Mexico, corruption, and deep inequality. He will be sworn in on December 1st, and among other policy proposals, he has proposed to increase subsidies to those less fortunate in Mexico and review past policy that, op that opened uh, Mexico's energy sector to private investment. While it may come as a surprise to some Americans, Mr. Lopez Obrador did not campaign on issues related to the United States or President Trump, instead focusing on domestic issues. Nonetheless, Mexico and the United States obviously remain deeply intertwined economically and culturally. We are eager to hear Mexican, current Mexican ambassador's thoughts on immigration and border security, NAFTA, other trade topics, and what Mexicans and their, and their neighbors to the north can expect with the new president. Let me introduce um, uh, the, um, the ambassador from Mexico, His Excellency um, uh, Gutierrez Fernandez. He became Mexico's ambassador in early, 19, uh, in early 2017. He served as managing director uh, uh, and for, North, for the North American Development Bank, headquartered in San Antonio, Texas, where he focused on infrastructure development and financing along the U.S.-Mexico border. Ambassador Gutierrez has had a diverse 15-year career in, in Mexican federal government, serving in prominent positions in the areas of trade, finance, diplomacy, national security, and did so under four presidents. Ambassador Gutierrez holds bachelor degrees in economics and political science and a master's degree in public administration from Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, for which he received the Fulbright Garcia Robles Scholarship. Walter Russell Mead, who will uh, lead the discussion with the ambassador, is a distinguished fellow here at Hudson Institute, also the, Clark, the James Clark Chance Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College and the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Walter writes regularly on a wide variety of subjects ranging from international affairs to religion, politics, culture, education, and the media. He is an honors graduate of Groton and, and Yale. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Gutierrez and Walter Russell Mead. Thank you. Let me say one other housekeeping thing. Uh, you should have cards on your seats which you can uh, jot down questions so that we can do these quickly and smoothly so we get as many in as possible. I know there's a lot of issues. Someone will come along and collect them during the program. 
and pass them to Walter, who will then uh, be able to ask those questions uh, at the end of the program. So use the cards, and we'll get everybody in as much as we can. Thank you. Well, thank you, John, for the introduction, and thank you, Ambassador, for, for joining us. I should say the Ambassador has some urgent business to, to do, so he will need to, when we finish the program, he will need to, to exit so he can get to the telephone. Apparently, this is a day where important calls are being made. Uh, but, um, Geronimo, if I can call you that. Yes, by all means. Um, this is, this is a really interesting moment in Mexican history and the history of U.S.-Mexican relations. From your perspective, uh, as a longtime participant in, in Mexican politics and now as ambassador, how do you see things in this transformation now? Well, uh, first of all, let me thank the Hudson Institute for inviting me to uh, be part of this morning's event. Thank you, John Waters, and it's a pleasure Walter, to, uh, it's an honor actually to be in this dialogue with you. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's certainly a historic moment for Mexico. Um, for, many, for many people, Mexico's political transition has taken a long time. Some would argue that it started, uh, you know, in 68 with the student movement. Some would argue that it was started in 97 when the, for the first time there was not a we had a divided government. Some would argue that it started in 2000 when President Fox won. I, I think that the truth is that Mexico's transition have been, has been somewhat ad hoc in the sense that it has taken a long time. And for many, uh, what was pending was having someone left of the aisle win, and that just happened uh, this Sunday. I think uh, the most important thing that I would point out in this respect with respect to Sunday's election is a fact that I think it reflects uh, the, that Mexico is a mature democracy, that we have a, a strong uh, democratic institutions. I think that there was a, a very clear um, result in favor of Mr. Lopez Obrador, one that has been uh, very timely recognized by not only the uh, competing, other competing candidates, but by everybody else. I think that uh, is extremely positive. I think they did so with uh, uh, a very clear sign of statesmanship and patriotism. And I think that's positive. Um, people would have not expected, perhaps a few years ago, that uh, somebody from, uh, quote unquote, the left would win in yeah. Mexico. And it has happened, and it has taken place peacefully. And in spite of the many challenges that we still face as a nation, I think that uh, last Sunday's result is, uh, in that regard, extremely positive. And it has certainly caught the attention of um, many people abroad and obviously Mexicans. Um, I'll just very briefly, uh, there's naturally, uh, it's true that campaigns uh, usually take place uh, largely centered on domestic issues. I think that was the case in, in Mexico's election, past election. But nevertheless, you cannot underestimate uh, the importance of the relationship for Mexico with the United States. I think, by and large, uh, the candidates, including Mr. López Obrador, um, you know, were more or less in the same place with respect to the United States during the campaign. I think that all of them were rather careful. I think they uh, recognized the importance of the relationship. But uh, I did not see in any way an, uh, an anti-American sentiment uh, within the campaign. And uh, I think that's also positive. 
I think I, I, I'm personally very pleased about the fact that we have, you know, that uh, uh, if I may use this expression that either gringo bashing was uh, used to gain some political points, I think there's just too much at stake in the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship. As you know, all of you know, um, uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador has already spoken with President Trump. They have expressed, uh, they had, you know, crossed their first impressions about the relationship. I, uh, from what I, I know, that conversation was uh, respectful, constructive, and uh, uh, that's, uh, that's very important and that's good. And I think that we can expect uh, very soon that uh, the transition team uh, will uh, be in contact both with the Mexican government and with the U.S. government uh, with respect to the U.S.-Mexico bilateral agenda. I'll just mention as an introduction, it's, it's no secret that we have three big important tracks in the relationship. One has to deal with trade, one has to deal with security, and the other one with immigration. And uh, I do expect that we can take advantage of what it's a long transition in Mexico, five months, um, to make the most out of this period. Yeah. This transition period of five months, should we expect Mexican policy to change gradually during that time, or does it sort of stay on the same course and then there's a, a change when the new team comes in? Well, quite frankly, uh, uh, President Peña Nieto is responsible for the governing of Mexico until December the 1st, and he intends to be uh, assume fully that responsibility until that time. Yet he has very clearly expressed his willingness and his interest in uh, working with the transition team and Mr. Lopez Obrador as closely as possible in order to address the many challenges that Mexico does have. And I, I think that's very positive. If, if you remember, uh, at least, uh, you know, in previous occasions, one of the transition was very much marked by uh, post-electoral debate and, and complications. This, this does not seem to be the case. Right now, as I mentioned, all everybody has recognized the result. And I think that uh, allows Mexico uh, to t make use of this five months, uh, and I think that's positive. Terrific. Um, has, uh, oh, I should ask, does uh, the new president-elect of Me president of Mexico have a Twitter feed? Can we follow him on uh, I think he does. Twitter? Okay, all right, because that may be where the real diplomatic action starts to take place. Now, I think one thing that, that has surprised some observers in the U.S. is a sense that actually on NAFTA, uh, the new team and the old team don't seem to be that far apart, that there's a lot of continuity in the Nieto position and the Obrador position. Is that I would go even a step farther. Uh, just this morning, I read some paper clippings and, uh, uh, on the part of uh, Mr. Seade, who's poised to be uh, a chief negotiator on... Uh, on the part of uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador, uh, expressing, at least in general terms, a, a support to what has been, uh, what Mexico's government has been doing as part of the negotiation, uh, supporting uh, Secretary Guajardo specifically in that respect, who leads the trade negotiation for Mexico. Uh, I, I also saw, uh, so I've seen some public expressions on the part of Mr. Lopez Obrador um, uh, a, uh, referring and clearly recognizing the importance of international trade and NAFTA. Um, uh, and also, uh, I think his uh, interest in, 
wrapping up a uh, new NAFTA 2.0 uh, as soon as possible. We, as it has been made very clear, um, we meaning the Peña Nieto administration, we've been clear about it. Uh, we think that it is in the interest of the best, in the best interest of the three countries to wrap up uh, a negotiation on NAFTA 2.0 as soon as possible. I think that all of the countries have other challenges and it's certainly a, a, a very complex uh, geopolitical environment and international trade environment. And uh, I think that the interest of Mexico, the United States and Canada will be served if we can get to an after 2.0, that it's on balance uh, acceptable and positive for the three countries. We're not there yet, obviously. Uh, as you, you know, we started formally negotiations in August of last year. Uh, we've, we've been, uh, the three parties been somewhat criticized for the fact that we've been delaying a result. You know, the first, I think, uh, the first time we spoke, we, we wanted to wrap up by December. That didn't happen. Uh, then we wanted to wrap up by March of this year. That didn't happen. Then there was talk about an agreement in principle in uh, May of this year, and that didn't happen. I wouldn't be too worried about that. These are tough negotiations. Progress has been made, I think, uh, you know, trying to be as objective as possible. And there are issues that still remain. As compared to 19, you know, the early 1990s, 91, 92, 93, when NAFTA was negotiated there, there is a far less of a policy alignment this time around among the NAFTA partners. And, and that makes the negotiation more difficult. Um, but what I do believe, again, going to Mexico, is the fact that uh, you know, Mr. Lopez Obrador has a express clear interest uh, in, in you know, proceeding with a new NAFTA that it's unbalanced favorable, certainly to Mexico, uh, but to the, the region as a whole. He has also very clearly uh, uh, mentioned that he understands the importance of foreign investment in Mexico and willingness to work with the private sector, not only in Mexico, but in the United States and elsewhere. And I think that's positive. All right. Uh, what would you say are the, are the main gaps now in the NAFTA position where Mexico is, the Mexican and U.S. positions are most difficult to reconcile? Well, there, there is, you know, in broad terms, I cannot obviously, it would be inappropriate for me to enter into specifics about the negotiation. There's three, three big baskets of issues, and um, one of them, it's no secret that the administration here, uh, President Trump's administration, has expressed his concern about the United States trade deficit. Uh, we beg to differ that that is the way to measure the success of a trade agreement. We have said that publicly, but nevertheless, we recognize that it is an important item for the U.S. administration. So, and in addressing the deficit, um, in all candor, the auto sector is extremely important because that's where you find uh, an important part of the trade deficit. Um, I think that there, there's still, I think we've moved closer um, uh, to an agreement on how can we modify rules of origin and other provisions with respect to the auto uh, sector that would allow uh, higher regional content uh, on the on the industry. It's it, it's not a it's a tough business. Uh, the industries are very much involved, but the most important thing is that the auto, the auto industry is in fact the North American industry, 
And therefore, what the Mexican position has been is, okay, let's be careful about how do we go about modifying rules of origin or doing anything else. We don't want to shoot ourselves in the feet and then find out that we, what we ended up doing was sending investment you know, abroad from North America. So that remains, I think there's progress has been made and that's certainly one of the important baskets of issues. The other one has to do with the governing of the agreement, um, you know, the, the, the different dispute mechanisms and uh, that uh, imply, you know, anti, you know, dumping chapters, basically 19, uh, 11 and 20. And uh, there the sense is that uh, the United States uh, wants to uh, certainly strengthen those mechanisms in a way that nobody's about the U.S. court system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we tend to think that international rules and procedures as the one we have established are in fact helpful for international trade. But I think that, that those are issues that in my view should not derail completely the negotiation. I think there's ground to actually update and, and you know, modernize those provisions in a way that everybody feels satisfied. There is another thing um, uh, as part of the discussions that I would put within the governing uh, part of uh, you know, the governing basket, which is a so-called sunset clause. I mean, it has been publicly talked about, which is this idea about a provision on ending the agreement automatically unless some action is taken. Mexico has been clearly very clear with that respect. We don't, you know, we're not in favor of that clause. I expect still a lot of discussions to take place on that regard. We have uh, talked about, you know, it's, it, it makes sense to have a, a, a stronger review of the agreement every so often, every five years. But the idea of, of, of you know, a census law in itself, certainly it's not something that would, we believe will be helpful. And our Canadian friends, to my knowledge, seem to be in the same place. And finally, there's uh, another basket which has to deal with um, labor and environmental standards. Mm -hmm. on, on environment, when we did NAFTA um, 25 years ago, and, and, and a lot has changed since then, first of all, the, the environment was not as front of center as it is today. Uh, I, I think that the three sides believe that we can um, strengthen the provisions on the environment that are part that were as part, you know inside agreements previously, and that now would come as part of a formal agreement. And I think that there there's basically a, a, a good consensus on what needs to be achieved. And on labor standards, um, the concern is that you know we must have as a region better labor standards, but specifically Mexico. The truth is that Mexico is in favor of uh, having better labor standards. Uh, we've had serious discussions about that. There was a reform uh, that was pushed by President Peña Nieto in 2013-14 at the constitutional level. And now there's a secondary legislation that needs to pass that will strengthen um, uh, labor standards, that will provide for more transparent uh, un elections of unions and procedures within unions. We don't oppose that basic principle. And I think that uh, my view, that is an area where you will find the next administration willing to work. And I think that the, we will, uh, you know, we will probably get to an agreement on that. So, so those are the three baskets. We can expect that nobody's going to be, in my view, that nobody's going to be perfectly happy with the end result. Uh, it takes compromise 
to, to, to reach an agreement like this. Um, it's likely that each party will, you know, will, be, will gain some, will lose some. The important point is that in balance, we, are strong, we strongly believe that uh, a successful, a new NAFTA 2.0 is fundamental for the competitiveness of, of the region as a whole, certainly for Mexico, and that it is actually an appropriately modernized is the right tool that would keep the North American region competitive. That is a central argument we have been making. Um, I think that there are many people in the United States that believe in, you know, either from Congress, from governors, the private sector, that believe uh, this is the right uh, approach. Okay. Uh, I know there's, anytime there's a political transition, there can be uncertainty, and this can play out in financial markets. And there's been some speculation that with uh, at least some of the more left-wing things that were said during the the campaign, you combine that with generally nervousness in emerging markets uh, with rising interest rates in Europe and, and, and the U.S. And then you, you add on to that some of the concern about NAFTA, the shadow of the future of NAFTA, that potentially Mexico could face some financial difficulties. How do, do you see the administrations working together to prevent that? I do see, uh, I, I do think that on the part of uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador team, there is a very clear uh, understanding of the importance of keeping sound macroeconomic fundamentals. Uh, I, I, I do believe that, and I think that's important. The, the second point that I would make is that, um, if, you know, there's, there's an expression that you don't buy trust, you rent trust, and markets are, you know, are very itchy, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're demanding. And therefore, we must continue, uh, I think, the, the Mexico should continue to be very careful about, uh, you know, positioning itself as a place attractive to financial investment and foreign direct investment. We are an open economy, and we should continue in that, in that regard. Uh, uncertainty about NAFTA is there. Uh, I think that you know, uh, you know, it will continue to there be there at some level until there is a conclusion. Again, I'll, I'll I'll emphasize that the first, you know, the first very first reactions that we've seen from Mexico's uh, government elect, if I may use that expression, are are uh, you know positive. I think that the peso has reflected that uh, lately, uh, and that's uh, that's good. And I do expect that um, you know the transition team will, as it has done over the past month, will uh, be engaged with uh, institutional investors. Um, we we should always be careful with that. Uh, you know, we've had over the last decades, uh, uh, you know, not very good experiences with um, some macroeconomic turndowns in Mexico. And let me close by saying something that I believe is very important, which is. It took at least you know, three decades for Mexico to build you know, fairly good, stable, modern democratic institutions. So whoever uh, wins, you know, once it's confirmed, legally confirmed, but you know, the new government, as it happens in any democracy, will have to operate in a systems of um, checks and balances within the different branches of government. And more importantly, I think that there's going to be a very demanding civil society in Mexico. 
uh, civil society in Mexico has strengthened, has taken a much more important role in defining policy uh, throughout different realms. And I, I expect that will continue to be the case. And that is always healthy. And also we have, um, in my view, we have a very uh, independent and free press that uh, helps uh, you know, put you know, authority in check. And, that's, uh, and, and we can expect that that will continue to be the case in Mexico. And that's always useful. Uh, I seem to be bringing up problems here this morning, which is not really my normal disposition, but I know that a lot of people in the U.S., Mexico, and the region are sort of concerned with, a, let's say, a general deterioration in the economic and security and stability outlook for a number of countries in Central America, going over to Venezuela, where we're seeing, uh, you know, um, economic problems, political violence in more than one country. Obviously, in the U.S., uh, we, we feel a rising pressure of refugees fleeing chaotic conditions. Is this a concern for Mexico, and, and do you see a future for U.S.-Mexican cooperation in working on these issues? Well, I, I do. I think that uh, it's time for our friends from Central America, especially the Northern Triangle countries, the United States and Mexico, to have a serious conversation about development and migration and the linkage between those two about security and migration. And I emphasize it's serious because, not because we have not done anything. I think that just last year, for example, uh, the U.S. co-convened with Mexico an important conference in Miami in June of last year to address these topics. But serious in the sense that we need to have a, an effort, hopefully by you know, the regional, uh, the whole region, uh, that is um, permanent, systemic, staff, and that involves resources to address these issues. We cannot, I think, in, uh, be satisfied, uh, any one of the countries, in terms of what is going on, on how we manage the migration phenomenon. That's the truth. I don't think the United States can be satisfied. I don't think we can be satisfied. And I don't think our Central Americans uh, can either be satisfied. Uh, it's a very complex issue. You need to address the root causes of migration, and that's not easy. We must do everything we can, uh, Mexico, Central America, to make sure that immigration is not a forced decision, as it has happened in the vast majority of the cases. That's not the responsibility of the United States. That's on us, I think. Uh, we certainly welcome the support of the United States in that regard and the measures that have been taken over the years to uh, address prosperity and security and, uh, in the region are welcome. I just think we should do enough. We, we have not done enough. I think it's, um, uh, it's appropriate to recognize that. I think that it is in the interest of the United States to work with Central America and Mexico in that regard. I've seen an openness, uh, at least, uh, to address these issues on the part of President Trump administration. Just next week, there will be a meeting in Guatemala, uh, a working meeting, and we expect to have a second conference um, either late uh, in the summer or in the fall with the Central Americans, um, ourselves and the United States. And, and, and again, there's, there's you know, three important things to, 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 to do. 
work together to do everything we can so people are not forced out of their countries because of lack of opportunity or any other reason. Um, the second thing is that we should think carefully about, you know, there will continue to be movement of people because that's just a, a fact of, you know, the century that we're living in. I think everybody wants for that movement to occur in a way that it's legal, safe, and orderly. Do we have sufficient avenues for that? Are we working enough uh, among the countries and within the countries to make sure that that is happening? And then finally, we need to address very head-on uh, human smuggling and trafficking, which is terrible. And it's happening. And uh, if we do that, if we make a serious effort, I think that, uh, you know, again, it's, not a, it's a complex uh, phenomenon, but I, I think we have a fair chance of addressing it fairly quickly. It does seem that with the U.S. moving fairly aggressively uh, to try to close its border, its southern border, uh, for some time, the migration to the U.S. has been a safety valve. Central American migration to Mexico is almost a pass-through phenomenon. If the U.S. border is significantly uh, harder to get across, does this mean that Mexico now faces a greater issue with Central American migration? Or do you think it would, I, it would slow if the oh. U.S. frontier were, were known to be closed? Well, first of all, if we have public expresses, one of the very first elements of the sovereignty of any country is be able to determine its migration system and to determine who enter and how does it enter. You're almost, it sounds like something President Trump says. If you don't well, have borders, you're not a country. Well, I, I, I do believe that borders are there for a good reason. It's just that, you know, can we think about borders, you know, in, this, in the context of the 20th century and what does that imply? And I think that implies several things. Again, uh, you know, it's a legitimate concern, but border security and borders is a legitimate concern. And uh, we've said that publicly, number one. Number two, Mexico does not condone or promote illegal immigration. We lose our best people. Mexico loses when our people are forced to leave. But having said that, if you look at the numbers, and I beg to differ you know, with all due respect that there's a quote-unquote crisis on the border. We do face challenges, we do. But you know, if you look at the numbers, in the year of 2000, border apprehensions in the southern border of the United States reached 1.6 million, out of which around 98% of them came from Mexico. According to CBP figures in 2017, and that might be a relatively a typical year, but apprehensions in the southern border were uh, 311,000, 45% of the Mexicans. So there's been a huge change. There were years, and the, the number of apprehensions was as 1.6 million. We're now to around, you know, the last full year, around 300,000. There's been a change in the profile. More families, as it's obvious. Less um, uh, uh, solo males, uh, and, and, and there's reasons for that. Um, more asylum seekers than not. There's a change. Uh, but there, we have the possibility of address that in a way that it does not confront our countries politically, number one. Um, why have Mexicans, the, the numbers of Mexicans, you know, reduced? In part, certainly the tariffs. 
There is no question about that. But also because you know, we like to think that we've done our homework over the last 20 years. Uh, in spite of huge social challenges that we may face, their people are doing better in Mexico. And uh, perhaps a little bit better. But if people have access to a home, if people have access to a mortgage and to have a car, if they have a little bit of you know, better health insurance or health, they're going to be less inclined. And I think, in, you know, I think trying to be objective that Mexico has done its work. And the numbers would seem to reflect that. We must continue to work in that regard. And the other thing is, yes, you know, borders imply security. We can work together to make sure that we, we, the region, knows who is entering, when are they entering, and we, in fact, do. We work very closely with the United States in that regard to monitor uh, you know, flows of people that come into the region. A security strategy, it's only about identifying risks, assigning them a probability that they will materialize, and then using whatever resources you have available to reduce that probability. By and large, that's what we do with the United States. And we can do more. And we can work with our Central American friends. I think there is sufficient common ground in that respect. A uh, question from the audience that leads into our discussion, I think. Um, concern about the drug cartels and wondering how policy might change vis-a-vis -vis the narco-trafficking with a new administration, uh, what the state of play is, how, how effective have we been at limiting the rise of these cartels? Well, if you look at what most uh, people think, I think uh, it's clear that we have not been uh, successful enough, and that's an understatement. Um, security, or rather insecurity, is something that gravitated very much in Mexico's election, and for the right reasons and understandable reasons. I can only think uh, that, uh, first of all, the last two administrations in Mexico have head on, you know, have, have confronted as best as possible organized crime. Uh, by many different metrics, we're not, you know, we're not doing a, you know, a good enough job. And that's, uh, it, it wouldn't be appropriate not to recognize that. I, I think it's a very, I, I think number one, we need to take into account that uh, this, this is an issue that takes a long time to address. And I think that experience in other areas of the world would, would you know, point to the fact that it's not, th there are no silver bullets to address this. Number two, I think we need to do a better job and, and that's the sort of conversations that we have had with the United States we need to focus more on disrupting the business model that going, simply going after the heads of the cartels. If you look at the number, you know, when President Peña Nieto administration started, there were around 100, I, please don't quote me on the exact numbers, but there were around you know, 122 uh, identified main targets. I think 100, 108 of them, or a little bit more, have been, are either behind bars or are now dead. According to that metric, there's been you know, a rather first success on that, and yet that does not seem to be the case. What we need to do is disrupt the business model, because if you, if you don't disrupt the business model and you have a market, as we do, and we don't consider you know, the supply and demand of whether it's drugs, weapons, money, et cetera, we're not going to be successful. 
Um, last year, we had two high-level um, uh, dialogues on, on disrupting transnational or dismantling transnational organized crime. I think they were useful. I think that uh, I do think that cooperation, security cooperation between Mexico and the United States, uh, it's very good, um, in spite of a difficult political moment, by all means. And we do that because it is our own best interest. You cannot, nobody can tackle transnational organized crime if it does not work with your neighbors and partners. And that's the truth. And um, uh, I, I hope, that would be my, my, my uh, opinion, that uh, that cooperation continues. As I've said before also, if the perception in Mexico on the overall political environment in relation you know, continues to deteriorate, the next government and any government is going to be less inclined be, you know, to, to cooperate, not because they don't want to or not because we don't want to or not because we don't think it's important, because simply the political support for it is going to be far less. And I think that needs to be taken into account. In that sense, the relation is, you know, we have to look at, at it comprehensively. Uh, one of the audience members asked that, uh, considering that, in a sense, both leaders of Mexico and the U.S. now are more nationalistic, at least in some of their rhetoric, uh, does this mean that some of these problems, like the, the drug cartels and so on, may become harder to resolve? I, I think that what happened in Mexico is pretty much what, what has been happening everywhere. And, uh, and it's, there's two main elements to it. First, there's a huge disappointment on traditional political parties everywhere and around the world. And secondly, there is a urge of disruption around the world. And change is good. Uh, I think people need to be careful when, you know, when taking uh, quick changes. Um, but I don't think that, uh, and you can very well label, you know, Mr. Lopez Obrador, uh, you know, as a nationalistic movement. Uh, but I don't think that that is directly related to support um, um, with respect to security cooperation. But from what I've heard, the public expressions during the campaign, and uh, in the last few days, uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador has expressed a interest and willingness to have a relationship with the United States and with President Trump in particular that is respectful, uh, hopefully functional, and uh, that it you know and has taken a constructive approach in that regard, uh, based from what I see, and uh, that provides an opportunity. So a better relationship, say, than with Germany. Better relations with with Mexico than with Germany under for the U.S. <laughs> well, I, I thought you were talking about soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Mexico is certainly uh, covering itself in glory. Um, as, uh, as maybe not everyone in the U.S. knows, there's kind of Mexican prosperity is, is regionally, it, it's not, regions differ. And in general, northern Mexico has been doing somewhat better than the southern, more rural parts of Mexico, which is where the new president-elect has his political base and where he's from. How will a change in kind of the balance of governance and, and political power in Mexico, a little bit from north to south, will that affect Mexican pol economic policy, uh, external policy? How do you see that working? Well, I, first of all, I think that his base is now pretty much everywhere. Um, if you look at some of the best, he did pretty well. He, he ran a very good campaign, and 
he convinced people, and uh, to my knowledge, he won uh, you know a majority of the votes in all but one or two states, and that's uh, quite something, uh, uh, irrespective of what anybody else think. Mexico does have an important challenge in terms of its diversity, regional diversity. If you go, uh, you know, to the north, you know, and, and abusing of a generalization, but north seems to be a little bit more industrial, um, better linked to uh, the international markets than the south. And um, I, I think that's, you know, to, to some extent true. You see areas like uh, Querétaro, Guanajuato in the middle that are doing extremely well, wh whose growth rates are way above the national average. And you also see in the south uh, some states or regions that are you know, lagging behind in terms of economic growth. President Peña Nieto, in my view, uh, addressed that uh, through a very specific initiative, uh, the uh, Zonas Económicas, um, which implied, you know, legal reforms, and that you know, I, I won't get into the details, but it, it's a way to address those disparities by providing certain incentives and certain certain institutional properties in a way that we can. Do. That's certainly needed, um, but I don't think that, with respect, I I, I don't know any polls. Uh, diversity of opinions with respect to either, you know, globalization, trade or the United States that would differ vastly. Now, if you live in, uh, you know, in cities closer to the north, let me use an example, um, there are 16 what we could label binational metropolitan areas from uh, Matamoros, Brownsville to uh, San Diego and Tijuana. If you see those regions, if you take the example of Tijuana, and San Diego, they're in a very, they, they are very much uh, interdependent. The perfect example, they in fact have a shared international airport where, you know, between San Diego and Tijuana. And they are increasingly thinking about ways to compete. My, my point, I don't want to extend myself, my point is that for many people along the border, I think that the natural day-to-day -day interaction in terms of trade, uh, in terms of uh, tourism, and even family ties is just uh, they, it's just part of their way of living. And uh, I think that you know that is why sometimes the border or the border region, and I happen to spend some time there the past seven years, sometimes they're a bit skeptical about both Mexico City and Washington because they say, well, you know, you don't really understand what is going on at the border. Mm -hmm. um, what do you hear, or how, how large are an impact in Mexico has the humanitarian border issue loomed lately, you know, with the family separations, and uh, certainly had a lot of publicity here in the United States, and a lot of broad-based concern about that. Uh, what are you hearing in Mexico? Well, in Mexico, as in other places, there was a... Uh, you know, a huge concern about, you know, family separation, mm -hmm. as it happened here in the United States. And uh, even though that the numbers of, of Mexican nationals involved is quite small. It's more Central American? Much more Central America. Actually, the, the number of Mexican, you know, and please, again, it changes from one day and another. You know, the number of cases was around the neighborhood of 25 for different reasons. Mm. 
but nevertheless, uh, I think that that's, uh, it, it created a huge concern, and rightly so. Since then, there have been conversations with the department. You know, the administration here has taken its own uh, you know, stance on the matter and, and, and address it. Uh, part of next week's meeting in Guatemala will continue to, uh, to center on, uh, number one, uh, what is being done to make sure that those families are united, to address uh, migration in a, in, in a broader context, regional context, I think it's important, uh, to address uh, the issue of asylum. And that's not an easy topic, but uh, it is also true that the number of um, asylum requests have uh, grown here in an important way. The same is happening in Mexico, albeit at different level. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, that's why I think, you know, we should openly and we need to have the same conversation between the United States, Mexico and Central America about what is going on. And it's not going to be, be easy. Uh, but if we don't do that, we're going to find ourselves, I think, just managing this um, rather than addressing serious solutions, at least for a while. And that, I, th I don't think it's in the benefit of anybody. When it comes to the relations of Mexican consular officials with US authorities, on immigration cases and humanitarian cases, do you find the cooperation is usually pretty good and professional, or is it more difficult? Quite frankly, it varies uh, from region to region and from time to time. One of the central uh, objectives here for our consulates, 50 of them, is assure that Mexican nationals, irrespective of their status, are, um, you know, are subject to due process and that their human rights are also observed. And again, that does not mean we condone illegality or that we promote illegality. That's not what we do, and certainly not as a government. Um, but we are just, we just base our work in what is, you know, in, in the sort of uh, provisions that the US legal system provides for anybody here. And um, we do work uh, frequently with the administration on different fronts, even on the tough fronts as this one. Uh, there's no other way to solve them or address them beyond, you know, having serious, frank, and many times difficult dialogues. But that's what we do. And I think, you know, we sometimes have uh, very good experiences, sometimes not so good. Uh, but it, it's, it's, you know, the basic uh, bread and butter of what we do every day. One final question, because we're coming to the end, and I know you've got some commitments. Um, uh, how would you characterize your relations with the Trump administration, not simply at a political level, but sort of operationally? Are you able to, you know, f when, when you have questions, are you able to get good, quick answers? Is the State Department and other government agencies that you work with, are communications good, or do you feel that the machinery of government is a little, isn't necessarily working that smoothly. When I, when I came here, um, and I was uh, as part of my ratification process in the Senate, I, uh, I mentioned something I said to the effect that the U.S.-Mexico relation was at a critical point. And sure enough, it made some news. Um, and uh, I was asked to, you know, confirm. And I said, um, I said, yes, 
we are at a critical moment. Uh, understanding a critical moment, a point in time in which we can either have work and uh, in spite of differences have a, a, a much more mature relationship uh, and one that works for both sides. It's simply as simple as that. We want a relation that works. Um, or uh, we can, there can be a major setback in the relationship. The past year and a half have implied, um, I think we're in a better shape than a year and a half. Uh, I tend to think that it's, I, I have contributed to that a little, a little, along with the team at Mexico and here at the embassy. Um, the truth is that I think that there are people on both sides trying to do the right thing and trying to uh, come with the best possible solution to the differences that we do have. That's helpful. I think that uh, many people in the United States have, uh, for the first time, have had to go out of their way to talk about the importance of the relationship. I think from a critical point of view, Mexico, uh, we had slept in our laurel somewhat. We do have an image problem here that needs to be addressed. We need to, it's important for us to be present, to work with uh, governments, at different levels with Congress, with the business sector, with NGOs here, just simply to have a systematic presence on what the relationship is about and what it's not. But we're in a better shape. Um, and, I, I, and I do think that um, we do have a chance still to uh, construct a, a better relationship. The differences that we have, which are known and public, have not impeded us to have fluid communication with the administration. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very clear about that. And sometimes we're criticized because uh, of that. Uh, you can have differences and have fluid communication. In fact, I would argue that if you don't have fluid communication, frank, open, continuously, it's much harder sometimes to solve the differences. So the differences are there, um, but we will continue to try to address them uh, with clear limits as it happens here in the United States. Great. I know we're all very grateful to the ambassador for his time and for a really illuminating presentation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.